Here are my ships, my darling, sailing towards the shores of destruction. I leant over her and kissed her. I put the blade edge between her breasts and she twined her legs round my back. Slowly, I pressed down. Slowly. She opened her eyes. What ecstasy there was in those eyes. She seemed more beautiful than anything in the whole world. Darling, she said painfully, I thought you would never do this. I almost gave up hope of you. I pressed down the dagger with my chest until it had all disappeared between her breasts. I could feel the hot blood gushing from her chest. I began crushing my chest against her as she called out imploringly, Come with me. Come with me. Don't let me go alone. I love you, she said to me, and I believed her. I love you, I said to her, and I spoke the truth. We were a torch of flame, the edges of the bed tongues of hellfire. The smell of smoke was in my nostrils as she said to me, I love you, my darling, and as I said to her, I love you, my darling, and the universe, with its past, present, and fixture, was gathered together into a single point, before and after which nothing existed. Welcome to episode 59 of the Bulak podcast and to the first episode of our reading club. That was Marsha Link Squaley reading from Itayab Saleh's Season of Migration to the North, which has been the choice, um, the first choice of our reading club. And this is Ursula Lindsay. Um, and uh, we're excited to be talking about this uh, classic, iconic um, book that is really a pleasure to come back to again and again, and also a sort of, I would say, unsolvable mystery. Yes, um, yes, yes. Um, and I, I, one thing that I would say, so I read this a long time ago, and while it stayed with me, what I did not realize the first time I read it was how brilliantly put together it was. And it's only now after I've, you know, read so many more books and seen how hard it is to put together a narrative that is this, um, a, a, this, you know, mysterious, this, um, it ref refuses to be pinned down, even though, you know, people do summarize it in, in sort of a few lines, uh, how how much he creates an entire world inside this book and it was wonderful to come back to and the passage you just read was um uh the climax of the book uh, uh in in more than one sense and although you just said it's almost impossible to summarize i think we're going to try here in the beginning before we get into all these uh elements to give an overview, an introduction to the writer, and uh, an overview to the plot of of this story. Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, I was rereading a lot of uh, writing about this book before this episode, and uh, there were, you know, the, a great deal of it said this is a revenge killing for colonialism. That he, he a, a, a good deal of it, I feel this simplification, the book really resists it as, as you read it, those kinds of simplifications. Right. But so the story um, that the book is telling, well, there's sort of nestled stories within stories, but um, you have a narrator uh, who belongs to 
the generation that is just going back to Sudan after the end of colonialism, so uh, in the late 50s, presumably, um, and who uh, becomes, who encounters and then becomes uh, sort of obsessed, partly uh, troubled uh, by this man who has come to settle in his village, but whose backstory is, who belongs to a previous generation of Sudanese and who was this brilliant scholar who traveled to the north um and it's his 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 life is the the scene that you read from is from his life which uh involves as you said uh these romantic relationships with western women that are sort of scenes of conquest or of revenge or have at least been read on one level in that way um and uh, the this story of Mustafa Said, this this character, this brilliant, uh, lonely man who uh, travels north and engages in this sort of uh, erotic conquest uh, that ends in in murder and disgrace and prison. Uh, his story is then nestled within the story of the narrators village and his life and 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 increasingly sort of his his relationship uh to Said or to the thought of of Said. Right. And one of the I think one of the brilliant things about how the novel is constructed is it begins in this, you know, a stranger coming to a a place and unsettling it. And when we first meet Mustafa Said, uh the narrator doesn't know anything about him. He's returning to his his village because he now work he's now a Khartoum man and who is this you know this new guy we he doesn't know anything about him but he's unsettling in some way and very slowly we we get the details of of this man's life as as our narrator kind of ekes them out of other people in the village uh he, he out of this woman Mrs. Robinson who who later sends him a letter out of out of uh, the man's um uh, widow out of you know, out of the man himself, and so slowly throughout the novel, we get the details of of this life. Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the one of the ways in which this story works is as a mystery and as a as a puzzle to be to be put together. Um, uh, per, but perhaps uh, before we start exploring the story, we should also briefly introduce Saleh. Um, sure. And- yeah. So he was, he himself was, was of this, uh, the, the generation who was born in 1929 in Northern Sudan in a village, uh, such that he intended to work in agriculture and come back and be part of that, that village. He went up and he, uh, studied in the 1940s at Gordon College, in Khartoum, which was this iconic school where um, where Mustafa Said also studies, it's before it becomes Khartoum University after independence. But a number of Sudanese writers from this generation studied at Gordon College. I think it was, you know, basically the option. Um, and and, and it, in the same way that Mustafa Said is sort of taken along by by this uh, swept along, he moves from Gordon College to to London, um, where while he's attending 
university. He's also starts working in broadcasting. He started working for BBC Arabic in 1953. And um, Dennis Johnson Davies talks about the first time he met Tayyib uh, Saleh um, and saying, well, I, I spent some time, I was a, as a child in, in Sudan and, and Tayyib Saleh being absolutely not at all interested in this um, <laughs> this man's story of being, uh, you know, uh, an Englishman raised partially in, in Sudan. Uh, but then later, when he started writing short stories, he did show it to Dennis Johnson Davies and Dennis uh, translated his work uh, interestingly, published it in, in Encounter, um, his his first work in in translation. So then, 1956, Sudanese independence. Uh, Atayeb Saleh does not go back to to Sudan. He continues to work for BBC Arabic. He he marries a Scottish woman. Um, he has three daughters. He later works uh, in the Ministry of Information of Qatar, um, and has a very sort of big life, uh, also for UNESCO, traveling around to many different countries, um, representing the interests of Qatar. Um, his nephew, Amir Tajassir, who's also a novelist, lives in Qatar and where he's a successful novelist. So season of migration to the north, uh, according to Laila Lalami, and I have no reason to doubt her, was begun in 1962. Um, published in in the fall of 1966 in Hawar magazine, which both these encounter in Hawar are CIA funded, but I think that's just a red herring, really. Um, and uh, it, it appeared in English in 1969, quite quickly, um, translated by Dennis Johnson Davies. He, he, and it was an immediate sensation, right? Both in, in Arabic. I mean, it's 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 a rare book that is a classic in the East and the West. I mean, that is that is sort of held in regard in equal regard in both places and was almost instantly recognized as one of the most important Arabic novels. Right. Yes. Despite the fact that he was actually quite little known as a writer at the time uh, when it came out, he had not written very much some short stories. Um Yes, I think when it came out in Hiwar, it was instantly recognized as a brilliant book. And when it came out in translation as well, I guess I'm less familiar, but I believe that it was strongly reviewed and uh, has been, you know, considered a, 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 a significant novel since it came out. I mean, he definitely was based really on the strength of this one book, considered on that short list of four. Uh, Arab writers for the, you know, the Arab Nobel that went to Nagib Mahfouz. Um, according, this is according to Dennis Johnson Davies, anyway. Um, so then he wrote, he continued to write. He wrote his two uh, Bandar Shah novels in the 1970s, and they're set in that same village, uh, Wad Hamid. And then he has this series, uh, he continued to write these lovely the, essays. The village at the bend of the Nile? Yes, yes. And he continued to write these uh brilliant essays that were collected into books between 2004 and 2009. And only one of those has been um, translated, uh, published in English this spring by Adil Babakr. 
And it's it's a really enjoyable read. And I think <laughs> because I was so disappointed in uh, Mahfouz's nonfiction, uh, I I I had put off reading this, but it was it was an absolute delight, and I'm so glad that I I invested the time in reading it. Well, we'll we're gonna we're gonna circle back around also to some of his work other than season of migration to the north uh, a, a bit later because, as you say, in a way, the the extraordinary success of his first novel has almost overshadowed everything else that he wrote. Um, but but before we talk about that, I think we're gonna try because it's hard to to talk about what it is that makes this book. Uh, continue to be like so powerful and um, so attractive to readers. I mean, I think it was absolutely it, it, it one hands down in our in our Twitter poll asking people what book we should, what classic we should reread uh, for this for this episode. And um, I think. I don't know. Do you want to start or should I about what, what it is? Sure, I'm happy. It? I'm, what did yes. you rediscover or? Well, I think um, this time I read, uh, I was far, I was so engaged in Husna bin Mahmoud's story. Um, uh, this, she's the widow of Mustafa Saeed who in, in Sudan, who, he, who when he comes back after his, after he's served his time in prison, he marries her and they have they have children together and then he goes off possibly presumably maybe he drowns accidentally maybe he commits suicide there are so many unknowns left in this novel uh and i i just love every single one of them um so after there's you know there's this the myth and he leaves of- her as a widow in the narrator's village Right. Um, raising their two children and leaves the narrator as her guardian. And then, yes, I agree. I think for me too, it is sort of the point at which the story sticks for me and with me is her portion of the story. So sorry, go ahead. And- yeah, it's absolutely electric, you know, both that the darkness falling and the narrator and her talking in, in their house with the locked room of his life that we still don't understand. But there's an electric tension and desire between these two characters as well. And he also knows that she, d- she wants to be left alone. She wants to have her own independence. She wants to have autonomy over her own life. And, and yet um, her father has agreed to marry her to Wedrayas, who's this man in his seventies, who's, you know, one of these fixtures of the, the village. And it's so like, at one, there are all these older people from the village, um, the narrator's grandfather, um, Bint Majzub, uh, who are sitting around telling, uh, you know, raunchy jokes together, laughing, and they're appealing in this moment. But then Wadrayas is also like this man in his seventies who insists upon um, marrying this young widow who says, if, if he marry if, if I'm married off to him, if I have no other choice, then I'm going to kill him and, and myself. And, uh, the, the, the role of the, of the narrator in this, that even though he is, he's 
far away. He is still um, guilty of this of this crime in in some ways, which which it, it echoes this brilliant poem I just read by Ahmed Abu Saleh. I think you know so many of these moments from this novel remain uh, circulating in in literature. Uh, and so, and, and also, I mean, so they marry her off by force and then she does exactly what she threatened to do. Uh, so the, so this, this marriage in which this older man basically, you know, forces himself upon her ends in, in both of their deaths. And, and obviously that scene also parallels the scene of Mustafa Saeed killing his first British wife, right? right? So you have these two scenes of sort of desire and violence that, that are some that are clearly related and yet that don't sort of parallel each other in in a in any sort of clear right um right they refuse to become they refuse to become sort of easy symbols of this means that and this is the this is the character this is the character who's doing this um and, and although yes you could read the first murder as some kind of domestic violence she she's also so angry and so you know seems full of self-hatred um and is an engaged in her own death jean morris his his wife who mustafa saeed murders I mean, maybe I'll, this is something I want to talk about, which is sort of like the fantastical and sort of melodramatic and gothic nature of the part of the story of Mustafa Saeed's story in England, mm. as opposed to the like very realistic and part of the story that's set in the village in Sudan and, and elsewhere in Sudan. I feel like one of the things that, so one of the things that makes this book so weird in a good way is that it has these two completely different types of stories that are woven together. Mm. Um, and, and one of them is like, you know, so over the top. Um, right. Three women know. commit suicide after having. Well, I mean, how, you know, and his, and he, and he, and the woman that, Finally, he, you know, he falls madly in love with, you know, wants him to kill her, you know, during sex. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 purposely um, and and I think there's a clue to that in that at one point in the book, he describes colonialism itself. He says, isn't the tragedy that we thought or the blessing that they thought it was a melodramatic act? Mm. And and that somehow one of the things that colonialism introduces are these this melodrama and these lies and right. this and this illusion and this fakeness. And so one of the ways to read that whole part of the story is as melodrama as opposed to the village, which is life. I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't have a clear reading. And and the other thing is like, I, I think for me, I kept thinking, again, this story does not make sense. And that's why I like it. Like, I can't make it make sense. I can't interpret it very easily. I can't, it's right. not, 
Right. It, it and yet all of this, all of the characters feel so real to me. Even the ones, even Anne Hammond, you know, the one who uh, plays into this um, role of being a slave girl, Sousen, uh, and Sheila Greenwood, uh, these these women who are so over the top in in wanting to participate in this exotic Eastern fantasy of of becoming Mustafa Said's lover. Uh, I, I believe them at the same time that I find them outrageous. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think maybe we differ a little. I, I don't find them particularly uh, believable, at, nor do I find Mustafa Saeed particularly believable in that sense. That That whole part of the story is sort of very powerful, but very overwrought. And... um. But at the same time, it somehow manages to not just be allegorical. You know, I've had I've read readings or heard readings where, you know, this this final killing of his British wife, like it's 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 symbolic. You know, it's not a real murder. It's all. uh, and, and, And I don't find that persuasive either. Exactly. Somehow he manages to be like right between the two, which is. Right. One of the crazy things this this book pulls off um, is is to is to put all these these elements together and 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 make them hold almost by magic. Um, And 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 it's very hard. I mean, it's it's a book obviously about colonialism in some sense, but it's very hard to say what it what it says exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. That's why I think that's why every review that I read that boiled it down to something I I found utterly unconvincing because I don't I don't I don't find it boiled downable. I I, yeah, I agree. And 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 like I said, the you know, I think more of the criticism and the attention, I think, has been paid to the portion of the story you know Mustafa Said's side this 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 uh, uh you know man from a colonized african country who who goes to the west and is you know uh, erotically fetishized by by western women um and and less attention has been paid i to to Hosna's story and and which is which remains so extraordinarily powerful you know the whole community even the narrator, because in the end he does nothing. Right. You know, hands this woman over to something she doesn't want. And and then when she, you know, would rather die and kill than than have this imposed upon her, you know, she's universally uh condemned and And they don't want to talk about it. They don't even want to tell him about tell the narrator. Nobody about wants it. to talk about it, and and this and 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 the elders of the village who, like you say, are portrayed in this absolutely like lovely scene where like their conversation is rendered and their jokes and the way they know each other and his his grandfather who is overall like a, a you know very positive rooted you know powerful figure and then it completely complicates your view of them to see the way in which they all go along to this terrible injustice that is done to this woman in their community and and then and then want to immediately 
you know, bury it and never talk of it again. I mean, his grandfather, who's supposed to represent, or, you know, is sort of this this figure of like moral, you know, rectitude and groundedness. His best friend is like a dirty old man who 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 starts off that conversation by like describing a rape as right. you know, joke, right. jokingly yeah. describing yeah. one of the times in his youth when he raped somebody. So again the contradictions are there and so many of them are never resolved. It, absolutely. And that, uh, to me, that leaves the characters with such a wonderful richness of, of, of the contradictions of reality rather than this kind of, uh, here's the good guy and here's the bad guy and here's what we need to take out of the story. It, it resists it so much. And the, the piece that I love reading about this book is, and I know this will sound wrong, but it's, it's Sophia Samatar's uh, Dear Tayyab Saleh essay that she wrote for the for Arabic Quarterly. But really what I what I love about it is she's engaged. Why would it sound wrong? Why would <laughs> well, it sound wrong? It's a very nice it's piece. Like I'm, it's like I'm promoting, you know, whatever. Well, you're promoting someone else, so I wouldn't worry about it too much. I think I was going to, I was going to ask you to read something from it. It's a, it's a lovely essay about the book. Right. Because she is engaged with it you know, as a scholar, as a reader over the course of many years, uh, reading about it, reading what he said about it and what others said about it and how in the end it continues to resist her. Um, and I just love that because that's how I feel about the book as well. I, um, she, you know, she writes, I call this a bitter, endless love. I call this fearful affinity the way in your novel, the characters look for themselves in the eyes of others and find themselves and are appalled. Most of Saeed sees himself reflected in the eyes of foreign women as a savage, an ape, a god, and he laughs and kills. The unnamed narrator sees himself reflected in Mustafa, for in his passivity as, and as a privileged male, he too is a killer of women. And I, I see myself everywhere in your intense reading of Shakespeare, Conrad, and Freud, your desire to meld these voices with the poetry of Abu Nawas, to blend them with nomad songs and the open sesame of a folk tale, not seamlessly, but choppily, as if in a welter of blood. I see myself in your fragments, the broken sentences and the echoes, the repetitions, your narrator struggling, drowning halfway between north and south, impossible to resolve these contradictions, to live this way amidst these conflicting demands, these currents drawing away and pulling home, the longing to return and the wanderlust you call a germ, an infection, a seasonal debility the narrator cannot bear, and the reverberations grow into a piercingly loud roar and a vivid brightness in which everything is obliterated. Uh, I, I just, uh, I love how um, uh, she... She she doesn't she you know she says I I read it like this as a he him being on the trace of evil and my professor said maybe he's on the trace of love and um and she doesn't really come to a conclusion about what this novel is about but um but I find I mean, yes that 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 there they are the story is taking place from from this village and and also I would say that <laughs> near the end of his life Dennis Johnson Davies who was the translator to English uh, of the novel and who knew Tayyib Salah over many years uh, insisted to me that people read the novel entirely wrong Um, and that the novel and, you know, so 
Dennis also... Wait, you got to tell us. You got to tell us now how to read it right. <laughs> What's so the I just, secret? I just want to just, you know, as sort of um, additional detail, you know, Dennis also translated his other novels. Okay, so Dennis, as well as his short stories, and I think more or less everything other than this book, Mansi, which Aydil has translated just now to, to English, most of his... English writing is is through Dennis. And so Dennis has a sense of reading him as an oeuvre, which I think is important because I think all of his works do talk to each other, whereas season tends to be read separately. But anyway, Dennis feels that this, he's he's basically, he's like Faulkner writing about uh, Yokna Potaufa or whatever it is, uh, Lafayette County. And that that this is a novel of with Hamid, that uh, that we should be focused on with Hamid, um, and yeah, not not necessarily that this is all a fever dream. What happened in in the UK, but that it's like a story that's being recounted from from Sudan, much like a story of of what happens in the East might be recounted from, or in what happens in Sudan might be re- recounted from London. I mean, certainly all my favorite passages in the book. I mean. I can't, I don't know when exactly was the last time I read it, but rereading it, there were a couple passages I was looking forward to mm. um, that I remembered. And they're all set in Sudan. I mean, I, I think that's the m- much sort of, I think it's actually where more of the story is set, like in terms of the actual unfolding of the story. And he has, I one of the one of the notes that I wrote when I was reading it was, this is the kind of book you want to just read without taking notes (laughs) because I had to kind of force myself to take notes. I didn't want to. Right. But it's, uh, you know, something that I, I think really bears saying is just how, how beautifully it's written. Um, and how there are these scenes that, you know, just stick with you forever. Um, and maybe I'll read from, from part of one of them, of my favorites. Yes, please. Um, there's, so there's a, it's, it's, it's too long to read all of it, but there's a scene, um, uh, where the narrator takes the bus back to Khartoum from the village. And, uh, he describes this, you know, long, extremely hot, you know, uncomfortable, uh, ride back in the bus, uh, which is just baking under this, you know, killer sun as as they traverse the the desert or along this desert road, and then um, y- you know, um, finally in the evening they're able to stop, and uh, there's this incredible you know relief uh, and. And and sort of lifting off of this like deadly heat and sort of like stultifying heat, uh, people began singing. Uh, they 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 began reciting poetry. And I'll just read the the end of this passage. Although I find the entire thing from beginning to end so so beautiful. Um, we formed ourselves into a large circle into which some of the younger men entered and danced in the manner of girls. We clapped, stamped on the ground, and hummed in unison making a festival to nothingness in the heart of the desert. Then someone produced a transistor radio, which we placed in the center of the circle, and we clapped and danced to its music. 
Someone else got the idea of having the drivers line up their cars in a circle and train their headlights onto the ring of dancers so that there was a blaze of light, the like of which I do not believe that place had ever seen before. The men imitated the loud trilling cries women utter at festivities, and the horns of the cars all rang out together. The light and the clamor attracted the Bedouin from the neighboring wadi ravines and foothills, both men and women, people whom you would not see by day when it was just as if they melted away under the light of the sun. A vast concourse of people gathered. Actual women entered the circle. Had you seen them by day, you would not have given them a second glance, but at that time and place they were beautiful. A Bedouin man brought a sheep which he tied up and slaughtered and then roasted over a fire. One of the travelers produced two crates of beer which he distributed around as he called out, to the good health of the Sudan, to the good health of the Sudan. Packets of cigarettes and boxes of sweets were passed round, and the Bedouin women sang and danced, the night and the desert resounding with the echoes of a great feast, as though we were some tribe of genies. A feast without meaning, a mere desperate act that had sprung up impromptu, like the small whirlwinds that rise up in the desert and then die. At dawn we parted. The Bedouin made their way back to the Wadi ravines. The people exchanged shouts of, Goodbye, goodbye, and everyone ran off to his car. The engines revved up and the headlights veered away from the place which moments before had been an intimate stage and which now returned to its former state, a tract of desert. Some of the headlights pointed southward in the direction of the Nile, some northward also in the direction of the Nile. The dust swirled up and disappeared. We caught up the sun on the peaks of the mountains of Karari, overlooking Omdurman. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> it just gives me chills every time. Um, uh, I, and there's many passages like that. I mean, uh, the ending of the book is also one of my absolute favorite ending oh, scenes yeah. of any yeah. novel I've ever read. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, this is an episode where we, we know a lot of the listeners have asked for us to talk about this book and are reading this book. So we don't really have to worry about spoilers. So, you know, this final scene where the narrator almost drowns caught in the river between the Northern and the Southern shore. And then what I had forgotten was that he wants a cigarette. <laughs> like, he was drowning and he says, suddenly I was overcome by a, you know, insistent desire for a cigarette. And I was like, you genius. Like, right. you know, it, it, and, 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 and he comes popping up out of the river. I think it's like an actor on a stage, which aren't we all. You know, it is right. yelling help. It is just, for me, perfection, the final right. page of this book. Um, so that's what I just keep coming back to is these passages that alone are are like marvels. They're like paintings I could look at all day. Mm. And and they I to me, they exist in so many different registers. Uh, you know, he moves between, you know, body jokes in, in Sudanese Arabic in, in the conversation to sort of an Abu Nuwas-like poetry. Uh, and yet it never feels like... So Dennis said he he's not concerned with language, but I think he meant the language never is foregrounded as if it's, an, it's, as if it's a work about language. But he certainly, much as he changes the style 
of of the novel, he changes the 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 register as well. I mean, he's a great stylist, and from and from what I've heard, also, I mean, he was extremely educated and could apparently recite all sorts of classical Arabic poetry by the hour. Right. I mean, his his culture was apparently he was very deeply educated, and then also clearly, you know, uh, well read in a lot of. Western literature, but so much of the book is tossed off lightly. Right. Um, so, right. So much of these scenes. I mean, the other thing that I find really impressive in the construction of the book is how much is done in so little space. Uh, is is how sort of condensed it is. It's a short book that seems to somehow overflow with meaning, mm. and 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 I don't know how he does it. Like, you know, it to have the confidence to be so economical, you know, to say so much with and such short scenes and pull it off, you know, to give you so much historical context about, or so, so much of a sense of what society, what time, what history we're doing with out of like one conversation here, one scene there. Um, you know, th- there's also this density to it. That Absolutely. Out- that the, uh, the, Colonialism exists almost entirely as a glacier underneath the story of which we see nothing. You know, it doesn't tell about how the English came to Sudan or what happened when the English were in Sudan or any of that. It's sort of um, implied somehow. Yeah, I mean, there's one conversation, right, about where two friends are arguing about sort of, you know, post-colonial like or or the end of colonialism and it's and it's very short um it's it somehow i mean i think uh i'm just very impressed with his 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 ability to sort of recognize this is a scene this will do it this will keep people reading for 50 years you know mm. like this is all i need this one conversation, this one scene, that scene in the desert, which suggests just like so much about a certain way of having community and communion, not only with others, but with your environment. Um, uh, you know, the scenes in the village. Uh, I, I, I know, but I also know. it's impermanence, you know? Yeah. It, yeah, no, I that was also a scene that I... I didn't remember. Actually, I didn't remember that I remembered it <laughs> until I <laughs> until I came on it. And I, you know, it's one of those scenes that persists in your mind, and you think, "Did it, was this a dream of mine? I don't I don't know where it came from, um, but here is where it came from." There were so many moments that I recognized them that they had entered my consciousness, and I didn't know that this is where they had come from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a. Uh... So it, I, I, so I do want to then say, uh, oh, so, so then uh, I, we'd sort of quickly thrown out. Does anyone have any any questions? Anything that they want to say? And Leila Azmi Gushi had written. Uh, she was curious to know if it's read more widely in some Arabic-speaking countries or communities than others, and how is reception of it by Arab and or Western audiences changed over time, or has it? Um, and, you know, I, I don't have like sort of a, a bird's eye view to be able to answer the question, you know, too much in depth. But, but I, I think some of the things that are interesting about this novel is that it has become so tremendously iconic and that his other novel, Bandershaw is, I'm pretty sure, out of print. And yet 
when when um, Bhakti uh, and Shungapura and Lily Saint did this survey recently of of people in the in the West largely who teach African literature, this was one of the top ten novels. I can't remember how many um, people. Uh, who answered the survey said that they put it in their in their syllabi, but it was it was overwhelming. But then there were no basically no other works. There was also um, there was maybe one other other author from Sudan, and there were no other works by Atayib Salah. So Nagib Mahfouz appears, but he appears with like ten different books, and Noella Sadawi appears with six different books. Um, uh, Asya Jabbar, you know the the other writers who who come on this list of of people who are repeatedly taught, which I think is one of the ways in which Atayib Saleh's book remains in the Western canon, um, is that the, their, their oeuvre is taught, like a number of their books are taught, but for him, it is just this only, this one that appears. Um, and I find it curious. And this, when this book, Mansi, A Rare Man in His Own Way, and Adil, translation appeared in, I think, April. I don't think there has been a single review of it. I'm going to read it immediately. I didn't, I'd never heard of this book. Can you tell okay, our listeners so, a bit about it? So it's so exciting because <laughs> it all, it, it structured in somewhat of a similar way where Atayib Salah himself. So he says, this is nonfiction. Adil assures me it's nonfiction. There's a photograph of this Mansi with Itayib Salah. And yet, and yet somehow in this way, I also feel like somewhat wrong-footed, like he's he's pulling my leg and that this really is a fiction. Because this guy, Mansi, is so larger than life. So he in some ways What's is the subtitle is it's Mansi, Mansi what? a rare man in his own way. And this Which I is think, great. I just which, <laughs> <laughs> right. Aren't we all a rare person in our own way? But I think that um, comes from Bar- Miss- Mrs. Barbara Bray, who is like like Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> it, or maybe I'm reading too much into it, but those two characters seem so similar. Barbara Bray is apparently a real person, whereas Mrs. Robinson is apparently not. But they seem so similar to me. Mansi also seems to come from no- nowhere. He is he's. Egyptian, actually, from a Coptic community, I think. Uh, and he rises up through these educational system and sort of lands in England. And he lands not by sort of the diamond um, pow- force of his his mind, but he's, he's this wonderful, like, insane trickster character who seems to be able to talk anybody into anything, um, you know, once... So you're, so you're average Egyptian, in other words. <laughs> Runs like talks his way into meeting the queen, pretends to be like part of the uh, Egyptian delegation, uh, uh, blusters his way into, you know, these major debates at at Oxford about Palestine, about which he knows like literally nothing um, and yet does okay about it. so he's this like oh he has different names throughout the book he he uses but, different but and Taib Saleh is this is told as, as someone that Taib Saleh knew and he like witnessed all he this? is he... like his close friend so it is similar in this way Taib Saleh is backgrounded in it so we see something of his life um, and Mansi is foregrounded in it much like Mustafa Saeed um, and and we. And so it is Mansi's story, but he's he's Tayyib Salah's friend 
frenemy, definitely, who, you know, is always cheating him and and yet is so charming and hilarious that, you know, uh, you wouldn't cut him off either, no matter how many times he embarrassed you, made you almost lose your job at BBC. No, but especially also because you're a writer and you know that this guy's a goldmine. Exactly. He does say that. He does say that, that, um, you know, he was irresistible as a character. Um, but so, uh, I, but then uh, I would like to read um, a short passage from Fomansi okay. as well. So nonetheless, he never lacked the company of girls who would fall in love with him. Some were remarkably beautiful and tall. When he swaggered along beside one of them, he would look like a doom tree dwarfed by a palm. He had a radiant, almost round face and wide, saucy eyes that would fix on the speaker without blinking. Knowing that of him, we would tease him into breaking his constant gaze, and he would succumb helplessly, bursting into a childish fit of laughter. He was also witty and had an excellent command of the English language. He was bold enough to storm into any group of people, taking liberties with them as if he were a long-time acquaintance, giving the impression that the person he was talking to, however high-ranking they may be, was inferior to him. I took him to my convocation day where, for the first time, he met an Arab ambassador and his wife, both from a ruling family. I had to leave him briefly in their company, and when I came back, I was stunned to see him standing between them and patting them on their shoulders, saying between persistent chuckles, Ah, do keep talking. What cute accents you have. I drew him away. Are you crazy, I said? Don't you know who they are? And who on earth are they? Even when I explained, he just said, So what? Um, so, and, and this guy who, you know, in the photograph and in the description, he's like got this big gut and a big butt and he's very short. He doesn't look, you know, with standing next to Atayib Salah, who's like in this nice suit looking young, um, this guy, uh, how would you look at, but he apparently does, he marries into this very wealthy British family. Um, uh, he, is all the time who he you know mistreats this woman is always off seducing other women getting into crazy scrapes um you know smuggling things in Atayib Saleh's name uh and it does it does feel unbelievable and yet at the same time he insists that it's real and nonfiction so I guess I I have to believe it well I very much want to read it and I think I think I I'm 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 interested too because there like there is humor in season of migration to the north among all the other elements there. You can see that he is gifted at observing uh funny things, people's way of patterns of speech, stories like and at rendering that. And so it's not surprising to me that he would have a book that um that sounds like it's really funny. And then these other I've read The Marriage of Zayn. I think I read it in Arabic when I was studying Arabic. And that's the only other book of his I've read. And I, I, and again, it was a book that was like, kind of resists inter- clear interpretation um, that kind of maintains, you know, people do things in it and you never get an explanation. In particular, the female character makes a choice a bit like Hosna's sort of total rebellion and 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 you're fascinated by it, but you don't ever know why. Um and 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 then I guess I I I I have never had a chance 
uh, to read. And I don't know anything about his other novels that are also set in the village and that and that are, are spoken so highly of by um, Arab critics. Right. Adil says that he, the, the translator of Mansi, said that he finds the, the Bandershaw novels to be his most significant work. And that, yeah, he's confused why why season is the icon that it is. Although I think it is the icon that it is in in Arabic as as well among many readers. Yeah. Um, yeah, like after 2011, I saw a number of people writing about it again, um, re-engaging with it in the spring of 2011, which I think is interesting as well. And then just this, the, the, the short story that won the, uh, uh, I can't remember what this prize is, but it's based in Eritreans for Arabic writing in the Horn of Africa. It was won by uh, a young writer, Mohammed Hassan al-Mahat, called Broca's Area. And Bint Majoub, um, Majoub uh, appears as, as a character in it. You know, this, this woman in her 70s who is like still hot well, for for a young husband <laughs> well and who who is who is at the same car at the same time carved out for herself a level of independence uh where she can sit around smoking cigarettes drinking and t- and, t- and telling body stories with the old guys and at the same time she completely upholds pretty Patriarchy. much the patriarchal order mm. of the of the village and and that may not be coincidental but i'm not surprised that she should reappear in another work of fiction because almost every character in this book is the kind of character where you feel like you could read a whole other book about them absolutely right? yeah you could I'm, you could there could be the grandfather's story wadreus's story like somehow everyone is vivid and 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 yet unexplained, incomplete, their whole life stretches before and after the moment you meet them and you want to know more. Mm, yes, a- absolutely. Yeah, I, and uh, and yeah, how did she become this? How did she gain this position for herself? I, I guess also she must have thrown many women under the bus along the way. Um, I, I absolutely want a whole book about Husna. Yeah. Yeah, it does that... Uh... Again and again. And the other thing I was thinking when I was reading this book was, you know, you know, you know, how you, you know, you routinely have some sort of analysis or remark about, you know, uh, Arab literature is, you know, some book is, is finally talking about taboo things or, you know, uh, are they being open? Is, you know, moving towards being open about sexuality? This book is so graphic, like, so in so many instances this book is so openly about like matters of sex both both terrible you know violent it's graphic about sexual violence and and just about sex in general um you know it's so open uh, about erotic things and and graphic in the description of of encounters um yeah i I, 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 wrote an essay about how some of his he found some of his students prudish about it and i i don't find that surprising i think probably you'd find some of your students shocked about this in many places in the world. I, I don't find it surprising either. I mean, also, I, I mean, also because some of it is, you know, non-consensual sex and, right. and, 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 and uh, you know, 
sex that is d- disturbing or you know it's to so so i think there's that but just in general the the frankness the conversation about circum female circumcision between yeah. the old people in the village where you know one guy's saying you know why are we doing this you know um uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be and, 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 and what a pity. And the women here are like this and the women there are like that. And, uh, I mean, uh, and again, there's whole universes in just like a couple pages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, you could make a whole book of just that conversation with those old people sitting around smoking cigarettes and telling raunchy stories. Yeah. But, but so I'm curious, um, I mean, I think the reason people keep coming back to, you know, to season of migration and like you say, even at certain like political historical moments, you know, is because it's, it's, it's reputation. And, and yes, it is partly, it's like sort of one of these East West novels, right? It's one of these books that's, that, that addresses uh, the, the, the problem, right. Of North, (laughs) South, East, West, right. Like that's, that's its reputation. And, and that is part of the story. And I I think, I suppose that's why it has the place that it has. Um, yeah. I mean, I think in a curricular way you can eat, you can slot it in. It's not long. (laughs) It, you could discuss it for the rest of your life. So you can, you can understand why it, uh, why it fits so well into, into a discussion, into so many discussions. And it opens up so many doors. I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. things you can talk about through it. You know, you can talk about the the erotic underpinnings of colonial relations. You know, you can... Uh, uh, you, and the, per- the persistence of colonial relations as well, because, you know, as the characters say, they, you know, they left in 1956, but they left their, you know, they left their people behind. They left their allies behind. Yeah. I mean, there's one quote I like a lot where he says, um, he says basically, you know, uh, at some point they're going to leave them, the Westerners, the British and, 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 and leave us their schools and their railways and the things that they've built and a language that at some point will just be a language to us. I mean, it's a kind of optimistic view that with time, we're just going to kind of get over this. And he says, once again, we shall be as we were, ordinary people. And if we're lies, we shall be lies of our own making. Right. Well, although, you know, elsewhere in the text, it says that, you know, colonialism has basically left its seeds behind to grow behind it. And that the people that they put in their schools are now working for colonialism. So I think, you know, I think like with many things in the book, it's saying different things at the same time. Uh, at once and 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 maybe that's the i mean maybe the the point is i don't know if it's you know co- colonialism or history in general in, but colonialism perhaps in particular introduces a contradiction that is not resolvable mm. like there is not a solution to this problem there is not really an answer there's just life going on uh you know, I mean, that's, if I was to try and say what the, what the, what it, what the vision is, maybe I would say that, but then again, maybe I'd read it again and say something else. I don't know. <laughs> but I, but I do think there's something about like, not, you know, that the contradiction can't be resolved, that the mystery can't be solved, that there's, uh, 
you know, that there's no necessarily way out, Mm. you know? Right, right. Um, Yeah. No, there is kind of a maze, a sense of it being a closed world that there is no escape from. Right. And yet somehow there are, there is, in the descriptions of life, there is something um, that is so, um, so beautiful. Yeah. No, if you're going to find your your beauty and your freedom, you have to find it inside this closed space, I think. And there are so many, you know, it, from the, the, the intensely beautiful, like the passage you read to, to like the very banal, like the desire for a cigarette, <laughs> one of the, you know, joys of life, one of the reasons to not drown, I guess. Which, and which also like his craving for a cigarette is, is an echo. Like there are so many echoes in the book where like one scene echoes something else on the bus ride, they stop and he describes, uh, I think a, a Bedouin who comes up to the bus and says, I haven't had a cigarette in two days and bums cigarettes from them and lies down basically in almost like a fit of ecstasy. Right. And it's one of these like vivid <laughs> two paragraph scenes of this man just absolutely, he's so happy with his cigarette. In the end, the narrator throws him his pack. Right. But it's, it's such a like a fraught image. Like there's this beautiful book by uh, Rabbi Jebber that ends with a guy eating a piece of cake. Right. So like uh, the world is shit. It's never going to be solved. But at least we have chocolate cake. But in this, it's like a cigarette is also an addiction. Right. It's like the uh, the solution is also the problem. It's not um, it's not a, a completely pure pleasure. Sure, but who, but who says that's what keeps you, you know, going? And then right. the last thing is the very last thing is a call to other people, mm, right. right? He yeah. needs someone to help him, and right. and so it's a movement towards others, right? Right. Um, yeah, right. Because most of Saeed is such a lone person, right? He, his mother is indifferent to him. I mean, she's nice enough, but pretty indifferent to him. His father doesn't exist. He basically is himself by himself. He doesn't have his close friends at school. He's shepherded along. And I would argue at some level, he doesn't exist. Right. I mean, there is no, like he says himself multiple times, there is no Mustafa Sayin. Right. He's a lie. Right. Like the other thing is, I mean, yeah, he's a lie. And and the narrator's last thing upon leaving, again, this extraordinary locked room, another one of these right. gothic elements right. is this British Insane. Yeah. dining. But, but also like sort of evocative in a way that even though it's completely preposterous, it's perfect, is the idea of this, you know, perfectly recreated, book-filled, furnished British living room hidden away in a house in a village in Sudan, which is like the mirror of his like orientalist room that he had when he was in London, you know. Right, with candelabras and a fireplace. I mean, everything. Oriental rugs, absolutely a totally elaborate vision of this this room. I, I don't know how big it would have to be. 
at, which again, it just can't exist. And yet it's perfect. <laughs> right. right. And right. the narrator leaves it saying like, I don't even want to hear the rest of Mustafa Saeed's story. Like, I don't right. care. Right. He's a lot, you know, his fraudulent chatter or whatever he calls it. Um, but I, I would like to read these other books about the village. So, and I'm so, so surprised that they haven't been translated, uh, into English. Oh, the, the, so the Bender Show novels uh, were translated by Devi, uh, Dennis Johnson Davies, but they've fallen out of print. So I think we could probably find them somewhere. Oh, well, they should be. Yes. And also like, it is odd that the, I just find it odd that there isn't more interest in the rest of his work, since this is obviously so accomplished. It's not just that this is like a test, a unique testimonial or uh, I don't know. Right. It's not like a one-off. It's clearly created by somebody who has. Who a, is a like fictional scar- scarily talented, really. Right. So, yeah. so what the heck, yeah. people? Yeah. Well, so. Um, that's it. We've thrown down the gauntlet. Like, get those, get, get those, get those books back into print ASAP. <laughs> yes, come on, whoever is in charge of these things. Um, and also, uh, uh, I I think uh, please feel free to um, share any feedback or comments or questions or continuation of this discussion on, I think we have a hashtag that is dedicated specifically yes. to the book club now. So yes, it's Bulak book club. All right. Um, and, and, and I think, I mean, we're going to try and maybe do this again in the sense that there are these books that one has read, but you know, wants to talk about again and, the idea is also, you know, to give people a chance to have read the same thing we've read um, so that we can really talk about it uh, uh, in in depth and, and people can sort of think about it along with us. Right. Um, and it's for me, it's so, so rewarding also because this book kind of sank itself into my subconscious in, in this way of a, like a childhood memory. And with a childhood memory, it's sort of not recoverable, right? You can never go back and reread it in any way but this i i could lift back out of my subconscious oh why do i have this image of these cars in a ring with their headlights on ah oh, it's mm. here this is it that's so a very I, lovely way of describing <laughs> what it's like to go back to to a book that's that's made an imprint yeah so i yeah. i'm i'm delighted at the idea of rereading some of the some novels that have really imprinted me deeply and also of course of engaging novels or, or poetry or etc that are that I haven't that I should have yeah 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 and I think also um you know the first uh, we kind of came up with four options uh from which to choose partly based on what was available online, mm. um, what was available in translation, of course, um, and, uh, you know, partly just kind of at random, let's be honest. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> sort of trial and error, throwing things out. And so I would also be curious if people want to share suggestions for the next book club. Right. Uh, if there's books that they think, um, I mean, we're kind of, I think we're looking at, in a way, classics, whatever that means, but let's just say, you know, books that, that people may have always meant to read, 
or have read and would like to reread uh, and that have, you know, that sort of occupy a, a fairly important place um, in, in in a lot of our imaginations or libraries or so on. And, and, and because it's always, it's always kind of fun to go back and talk about, to figure out why in a way. Yes, Everybody, exactly. to figure out why you right. care about a particular book. Right, right. So much. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me in this adventure. Well, thank you, as always. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, we'll be back uh, in a couple weeks. And thank you all for listening. Um, please uh, remember to subscribe if you haven't already. Share the show. Um like it, rate it, you know, that the usual stuff. Thanks a lot and we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.